We've come to the final week in a series that we've called On the Road Again, tracing as we start the year what it means to actually be Seven Mile Road together. And what we've said is that, you know, we're, we're tracing the story that gives shape to us as a community from Luke chapter 24, and we've said that it means that we've got hearts that are aflame for God and then we go on this journey, these, these three rhythms of the seven-mile road, and we talked about what does it mean to journey together? To actually live honestly with one another in the light, saying, here's all of who I am, and here's all of who you are, and we're going to lock arms and really be family together. We're going to journey together. And last week we talked about, as a community that's journeying together, that we, we set our gaze on Jesus, not just to have a, a second balcony view, but to be up front, unveiled face, getting to behold the glory of Jesus, that we want to be a people that are perpetually enthralled with Jesus, who see him clearly and set our gaze on him daily. And we believe that when we journey together and we're beholding Jesus, that we will necessarily, like as if it is of the same fabric, become a people that spread hope in the world. And so this morning, that's what we're going to discuss, is what does it mean that we, as men and women, spread hope just like those men on the seven-mile road in Luke chapter 24, that when they realized that the king was alive, they ran back to Jerusalem to announce it to everyone. That we want to be the sorts of people that, that offer healing and hope in the world, especially, especially now, if ever there were a moment in time where we believe that neighbors and friends and family members need hope. Like, this is one of those moments that, though painful, I feel like has been gift-wrapped and given to the church to say, will you be who you are called to be? Will you be hope-bearers and light-bearers in a world that has felt plunged into shadows and darkness over the last year? That we want to be those sorts of people, and towards that end this morning, what I want to to preach to you what I want to exposit, to draw out of the text is what we just read from 1 Peter 2, this idea that the activity of mission, the activity of spreading hope emerges directly from our identity. And so this morning, what, I, what I'm going to share is, is just quite simply, I'm going to invite you to be you, to truly be you and to make him known because when we are who God has called us to be we will be making him known so the real invitation is to just to be us to be who we've been called to be we're going to see that our communal identity when truly understood when we really lay hold of who we are our communal identity unleashes declarations of God's excellencies and it empowers an embodiment of God's character that the declaration and the embodiment will flow from our communal identity together. So towards that end, we're just going to do two things together. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be you? As sketched out for us in 1 Peter 2, what is our communal identity? And then we're going to talk about what does it mean to make him known and how do we go about that? You with me? You up for it? All right, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Let's talk first. What does it mean to be you? And these verses... There are nine different statements of identity in four verses. Peter's, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, trying to make a point. He's trying to help us understand this is who you actually are. Oh, that you might believe it. And I think in order for our, purpose, in, in, for our purposes, it's best to, to categorize these nine titles that we're given, these nine statements of identity, kind of fall into three general categories. So what does it mean to be you? The first category is this. It means that you are 
cherished. You are cherished. Look back at verses 9 through 11 with me. And let me just, you'll see a couple of the words that are highlighted there. But hear this. Hear these words. And hear the cherishing of God for his people. He says, but you are a chosen race. Meaning I have selected you. I have chosen you. I have set my affection on you. He says, you're a royal priest and a holy nation. A people for his own possession. That God's desire for you and for his people, our communal identity, is that he wanted to own you for himself. He wanted to possess you. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of who, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Another way of saying a people for my own possession, you're mine. I chose you and called you to be mine. He says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he starts verse 11 by saying, beloved. These markers of identity are flowing off the pen of Peter. And the first note that we have to wrestle with is this reality. We are cherished by God. Like not just that he puts up with us, not even that he welcomes us hospitably. Like, oh, I wasn't expecting you, but the door's always, well, uh, the door's always open. No, no, no. Like, I have cherished you. I have called you. I have set my affection on you. I want you to be mine. He wanted you. Uh, it's interesting. If you're, if you're in a relationship uh, that's growing serious, or maybe you're married and, and uh, you know, dating, engaged, married, and, and all of a sudden there's this realization of, I think this other person loves me. And if you ask the question, why do you love me? Let me just say this. If there is a really clear answer that rolls off the tongue, that can be a little bit unnerving, if we're honest. Because if the answer is someone loves you and they say, well, it's because you're beautiful. It's because you're so handsome. It's because you're so smart. It's because you're so witty and you always have the right line at the right moment. There's, there's this combination of things. These are the reasons why I love you. When, when there are very clear reasons that can be articulated, there's a bit of a danger there, isn't there? Because what happens when I'm not beautiful? What happens if there's an accident and I don't have my wits about me like I did previously? If your love is grounded on those things, what happens to your love? You see, the difference in the way that God loves us, and I, I, I need us to hear this because everything else flows from recognizing what it means to be cherished by God. He says, I've chosen you. I've selected you. And he actually, there's a passage in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, where he doubles down on that, explaining how he chose his covenant people. And he says to Israel, the Old Testament covenant people, I selected you not because you were more numerous, not because you're more powerful. In essence, he's saying there was actually nothing about you that caused my heart to run to you. He says, I, I chose you. I loved you because, do you know what he said? Verse 8, because I loved you. Now, what does that mean? What it means is this, that when you are cherished by God, when you begin to realize, when you're invited into relationship with him and you find yourself as part of his family and you ask yourself, how did I get here? The answer is not because you were good, because you were smart, because you, you were so moral and you made a good biblical decision, you selected the right God to worship. The answer is you were here because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you, and there's no way to get under it. There's no circumstantial reality that tomorrow might change. There's no uncherishing you. 
Because when his cherishing of you has been, has been settled on a sovereign, free decision of his will, he just loves you because he does. All of a sudden you go, oh, I'm cherished in a way that frees me, that changes me, that empowers me. You see, the first note about our identity, the first invitation to just be the church is we have to start in this place of saying, you have been cherished and God delights in you purely because he delights in you. And then when, we, when that starts to set in on us, the other two notes about our identity emerge and they actually flow from it. That he, the first note of what does it mean to be you is that you are cherished. The second note is that you are dignified. Like you have a very dignified identity that emerges from this text. And in chapter 2, looking back at verse 9, you get these two statements. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Flowing directly out of bringing a chosen people is this idea of royal priesthood, holy nation. You talk about exalted language, high, dignified titles bestowed upon you. There's part of us in this moment that we go, I don't, I don't know about those sorts of titles. I don't know about being royal and being a priesthood. But you realize it, it flows out of being cherished that we realize just how dignified we are. It reminds me of the change that took, shift, that took shape on May 19th, 2018. Anybody remember what happened that day? I'd be surprised if you did. Maybe a little weird if you did. Uh, there was a woman who previously had been a model for Deal No Deal. You ever seen Deal or No Deal? She held a suitcase on Deal or No Deal for a couple years, made a good living that way, and then became a television actress, served for seven seasons on a moderately successful show. But on May 19th, 2018, she became a duchess, right? Meghan Markle, did you know she used to, she used to hold the suitcase? Now she's royalty. And a lot changed on May 19th, 2018. If you just consider for a second, she became a duchess. Her citizenship changed because she had to be a, a citizen of the UK in order to be royalty. Her name changed. Her occupation changed. She officially retired from acting a couple of months before being married to Prince William. Her family changed. She became incredibly famous. All eyes on her. Why? solely because she was loved by royalty. It's a, her whole identity altered and changed. Everything about her. And in the same way, when we realize that we have been cherished by the King of Kings, like loved in that way, it reorders everything about our identity that we begin to go, ah, I don't feel royal. And you may not feel like you're part of a priesthood. Many days you wake up going, I don't feel like a priest today, like a bridge builder between men and women and God. But what he's saying is, no, no, my love is working that in you, that your identity has been rewired, that you have been cherished, and now you have this high, holy, dignified calling. What does it mean to be you? It means to go, oh, I've been cherished. And it means I have a dignified calling. I'm holy, set apart, a royal priesthood. When cherished and dignified, the last one becomes clear, and it's this. You are also, because of the love that's been set on you, marginalized. You're marginalized. Isn't it interesting that the same love that dignifies you marginalizes you? But that's what this text communicates to us. 
In verse 11 and 12, we read this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He's going to go on to invite us to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. What he's saying is, because you have been so loved by this God, you're never going to feel home again. That is until you're in his presence. I was this morning walking and praying over this time. I was walking out along the bayou watching the sun come up over downtown. And I was thinking, I was thinking this reality. If one of you were to offer me an estate in the mountains, like I had an estate, I had a private chef, I had a driver, I had everything I could possibly li- need living in the lap of luxury. But you told me that Ashley was going to live somewhere else. Like, there's a certain reality where I go, it doesn't matter. Like, no matter how good all of it is, no matter how nice the house I live in is, it will not feel like home. It won't be home. There will be a sense of ache that I'm not home, no matter what you provide for me. And what God is saying is, when you realize my love for you, that it's primary and life-altering, and runs deeper and truer than any relationship you're ever going to taste, you will all of a sudden realize, I am now a sojourner in exile with an ache longing for home. I cannot and will not feel at home until I am with him. I am, until that moment, a sojourner in an exile. And what we realize is that life lived with a lack of clarity around home leads to all sorts of confusion. It's like the person that goes on a camping trip and they want to bring everything with them. You know, you've got a tent and you're going to be sleeping on a rock tonight, but you brought your, your whole wardrobe and you brought a flat screen television and you're trying to set it up to the generator and you've got your refrigerator and you're, you're actually, you're dragging everything out. You're going, this is going to be an epic camping trip. And the realization is this, you have forgotten what home is. You're trying to treat this tent. You're trying to treat this momentary journey as if you're home and it doesn't make any sense. You see, we won't be the sort of people who spread hope until we understand our identity, that the love of God has marginalized us. And if you are laboring to make this world your home, your house, to be your your sense of ultimate reprieve, your relationships, to say that if I can just amass enough and get it all together, it's as foolish as trying to pack your, your fridge and freezer on your next camping trip. You've confused what home is. And incidentally, our ability to be the sort of people that spread hope is dependent on us being us. Do you follow me? Like if our identity is confused, if we don't actually believe ourselves to be loved by God, if, if we're struggling to lay hold of and to receive what he has accomplished in Jesus, if we, we think, you know what, just lowly me, I don't have any work that I can do on behalf of God, I don't feel dignified, I don't feel like I can be the representation of God to the people in my life, I don't, I don't have that capacity, and you know what, I just want to settle down and make this place my home, find a comfortable spot, and, and when we live in that place, our ability to spread hope evaporates. 
You see, it's being cherished, dignified, and marginalized that empowers the call that this text is going to call us to. Your activity is going to flow from your identity. So the first invitation is to be holy you. Who have you been called to be? I would encourage you to consider where on, on, this, on these markers do you struggle to believe your own identity? Do you struggle to believe yourself to be loved? What does it look like for you to, to rehearse the gospel and go back to first principles? Do you view yourself as, well, I'm not dignified. I certainly can't fulfill the role of priest in the world, being truly holy and set aside. And are you resistant to the call to be a sojourner, to be an exile, to feel I'm truly not at home? And last note on, on BU, and then we'll turn the page. All nine of the statements of identity in this text are communal in nature. It is impossible for you to fulfill these markers of being cherished and dignified and marginalized alone. You cannot, you cannot be who God has called you to be solo. I hope we're all just, we're good with that. If, you're, if you feel like you're going to fly by on this journey and just kind of skirt past the edges of what it means to be a part of the church family, but really when it comes to my faith, it's kind of this private secret thing between me and God and the secret places. It, you will never experience what God is calling you to in that, in that equation because you've been made for other people. And so all of these, if you think about it, people priesthood, God's, for God's own possession, that he's, he's over and over, he's using the plural. And when he says sojourners and exiles, they're in the plural. Everything is plural in this text. And so recognize that all, of the, all three of these can only be lived out communally. So be you, and as you're being you what, you, what you will naturally do is make him known. So let's talk about what that looks like in this text. Two things that emerge in what it means to make him known. In verse 9, it means that we will declare. We're going to speak. We're going to say something. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that which introduces a purpose statement. Why? Why are we chosen? Why are we holy? Why are we a priesthood? Why are we his own possession? Why? That you may proclaim speak, announce, publish, declare that you would open your mouths and say something. And what you would say is that the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we begin to step into our identity and as we are fully us, what we will do is we will speak about the excellencies of the, the marvelous light the character of God, that he is calling us from darkness into a marvelous light. We're experiencing his character in new and fresh ways. As we grow in awareness, as we grow in maturity with God, reading the scriptures and beholding Jesus regularly, what we begin to realize is the depths of the darkness that he called us from. It used to just be life, and we didn't think there was that much to it. I'm basically an okay person. I'm holding it together. But as we start stepping further and further into his marvelous light, realizing that we are cherished and that we are dignified and now marginalized, and we start to look back and we go, wow, what I thought was right and good and normal was so twisted and selfish 
And it was all about me, and my life was this big, but he's expanding me into the eternal. And we look back and we go, oh, what darkness that was, and how marvelous this light to be loved and freed in these ways, that we start to say, how could I not declare to others, you too can live in the midst of marvelous light? You see, it flows naturally from experiencing this. The way that we have trained towards this end at Seven Mile Road I stand by, I think it's powerful and good, but we've also begun to notice the limitations of it. We've trained people to do a couple of things around Seven Mile Road, and if you've been around, you've probably been through some of this. One of the things we invite you to do is to pray daily for what we call a top five. Five people that are far from God, but that are near to you. We think that's a really valuable discipline to cultivate to be praying for people that we long to spread hope to. We long for them to know that they too that the love of God is available to them. And then we've trained in John evangelism training. Many of you have gone through that training. In essence, we've developed a training that that helps equip you to read the gospel of John with friends that they might see Jesus clearly in the scriptures and come to love and worship him. But one of the things is our team has continued to discuss and pray for you. And even as we were praying over the series, we realized that in some ways, our invitation to step into spreading hope is kind of like an invitation to driving on the Autobahn. It feels like, wow, the cars that are driving on that road are flying. They've got big horsepower and they're driving. And sometimes it may feel for you uh, that I don't know where the on-ramp is. Like this whole idea of reading the whole of a book of the Bible with a friend of mine that's trying to figure out this relationship with God, that it may feel like, I don't know where the on-ramp is, and and we want to invite you into an on-ramp. I want to invite you today into an on-ramp that we together as a community are going to try to take this step over the the next couple of months. We try to live into our identity to declare what God has done. It's very simple. We want, to, we want to start to practice in this season care through prayer. Praying for people real simply in ways that allow us to have on-ramps to declare and to spread the, the glories of his excellencies. So what I mean by this, real simple. Every time that you eat out or that you order food that a delivery person brings to your door, I'm inviting you to do something, to step out in boldness in a simple way. Every time to very simply say, hey, I'm about to pray over this meal. Is there something specific that I could pray for you about? To say it to your waiter, to say it to your delivery person. What we're, we've started doing this as a staff and as leaders as we've been preparing for inviting you into this. And we've actually established, I'm going to put the phone number up here. There's a phone number that we've established. And this is a, a number for Seven Mile Road Prayer Line that after you talk to someone, I'd love for you, truly, grab your cell phone if you would. Uh, I'd invite all of you to grab your cell phone. This is the number. Humor me, even if you plan to never use it, although I hope that you do. Would you get your phone out? And I want you to, I want you to save this contact. 832-408-1014, Seven Mile Road, prayer number. And this is all we're asking you to do. Uh, like Ashley and I went to dinner on Thursday night, and Sage, our waitress, she shared a prayer request with us just before we prayed. She's a student at Bel Air High School, and we got to talk to her a little bit. She also told us she thought we were in our late 40s, which was embarrassing. <laughs> Don't ever ask your waitress how old you, they think you are. We, that's, I, I, that was not the point of mentioning this. 
I just saw Ashley looking at me because we're still recovering. We're not in our late 40s, by the way, if you thought that was the case. I'm 37. I'm 37. I'm not in my late 40s. Anyhow, even though Sage said that, we still prayed for her. We showed her mercy. We've been praying for her. But the other thing I did is I texted her name and the prayer request to this phone number. And it's, it's populating a list for us that at our prayer meetings in February, March, April, and May, we're going to distribute, and we as a community are going to be praying over the names of people from all across the city. And what we've realized, just friends, it's very simple. Someone will either say to you, no thanks, which is the worst thing that could happen, or they will say to you, you know what, yeah. Like my, my friend Palacino that I met that all of a sudden said, you know what, I haven't talked to my dad in a long time. And I really would love prayers for my relationship with my dad, which opened up an ongoing conversation from that moment. Or like the delivery man that's come here a couple of times, and Peter each time has offered to pray for him. And the second time he drove up, and before he even said, he said, are you going to pray for me again today? And Peter said, yes. And he said, can I just come upstairs and have you guys pray for me up there? That there are people driving around this city, waiting on your tables, that need hope. And you have it. And so what we're inviting the community of Seven Mile Road, it's such a simple on-ramp to just start saying, hey, we're going to live like every day. We might be the people who spread hope into the city and that we can declare his excellencies. Our dream, and we're going to chart this and invite you into this. Our dream is that in 91 days, we might gather 5,000 names. We think we could do it. It actually wouldn't be that hard. We've done the math on our community. It would mean that everybody's involved in doing it a couple of times a week. If we were all to do that for the next 91 days, between now and the start of May, right through Easter, we would get to pray for 5,000 people by name as a community. Incidentally, our identity unleashes this. You are cherished, dignified, marginalized, called to proclaim His excellencies. Would you start by, by engaging with us over the next 91 days by caring through prayer? You see, we want to be the sort of people that proclaim His excellencies. And then lastly, you know, this, this idea of how do we make Him known? We declare and we embody. Those two words should sound familiar to you. We're not making this stuff up. That this text actually shows that we say something and we do something. That's how we live out our identity. In verse 11 and 12, we see the embodiment of the gospel. It says this, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. To abstain and to keep so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Very simply, that if we are going to live this out, we embody it in such a way that we're abstaining from the passions that wage war against your soul. Rest assured, brothers and sisters, your passions have declared war on your soul. That's what this text says. War against your soul. Your passions want to consume you. They want to undo you. You wake up every day in a war zone. But the invitation is to live like it. That when we wake up and we say, okay, my passions want to own me and undo me. Today, I'm going to abstain. Today, through sobriety and urgency and preparedness, I'm going to wake up and be suited up and ready to, to abstain from temptation of my passions and then to keep my conduct honorable among the community where I live. You see, an honorable conduct 
and abstaining from passions is, is like this platform. It's simple. It's, it constructs the platform from which the message is declared. That in your life, as you abstain from passions and you keep your conduct honorable, what it says is this, that even when people speak against you, you will have a platform from which you will be able to, to believably declare that God is excellent. The word for honorable, one of the alternative translations of it is actually is also excellent. It's not the identical word in Greek, but they're synonyms for declaring his excellencies and having an excellent character. The idea is that your excellent character allows your declaration of his excellencies to make sense to people. That they will look at you and go, oh, your God must be excellent. Because I see the way that you love and tend to those around you. The way that you're not consumed by the same passions that everyone else is. You see, our holy lives allow our declaration to make sense in the ears and the hearts of the people to which we're speaking. You see, so we don't just declare, we embody. And as we do these two things together, our identity in Jesus becomes a powerful wave of hope for the city. Would you imagine with me for just a second that we actually believed this and obeyed it? Like, I got so excited this week thinking, what if we just, what if we just took God at his word and we obeyed him. If we together were a community who journeyed together and kept our gaze on Jesus and spread hope to the world with hearts that were on fire, what would happen? It would be real revival. In a moment where people all around us are longing for hope, we would be people that like a cool, refreshing wave of grace spilling from block to block would remind people that there is hope and healing and joy to be had. We can be a part of that. That's what it means to be the church. The church is not a stagnant institution. It's a movement. It's an adventure. It's an invitation. Oh, that we would step into that invitation and that we would live it out. And brothers and sisters, just before we feel like, oh, I've got a lot of work to do, remember where this journey started. It starts in being selected, loved, cherished. All of these glories, all of this adventure is unlocked by beholding Jesus on the cross and for a moment saying, allowing it to be personalized, you went to those depths to love me, to love us. We want to live lives and to speak words that are in alignment with that love and that truth. We want to be people who spread hope. So brothers and sisters, would you be you and make him known? Let's pray. Mm. Oh God, I long, I long for us to experience the joys of being wholly alive in you, being used by you. I pray for each man and woman that can hear my voice right now, that, that if they've never just open-handed and open-hearted received your love, that today they would trust Jesus. They would trust that his love is is for them and that his grace is powerful enough to wash them clean of all of their sin and their brokenness. 
And for those of us who have received this love, that even today, God, that you would help us not to miss that right now eternity touches this moment. You are inviting us to be a part of grand and powerful activity in the world. Help us not to miss the adventure. I pray that we would step in faith into this journey to to pray for those around us, to love them and to declare your excellencies, that we would spread hope until one day we are no longer sojourners and exiles, but we see you and we get to be home finally. I pray that we would be found faithful and urgent until that moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.